0: This
1: is an ABC podcast.
0: Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the political debate on detail. The Prime Minister dismisses questions about the finer points of the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Also, are Australian GPs failing to diagnose long COVID in children? We'll meet a Queensland mother who fought for a diagnosis.
2: She's gone from being someone who had a very full life to somebody who struggles to be able to leave the house, to shower herself. It's like being in lockdown, but your body's the thing keeping you locked down.
0: And 20 years since the deadly Canberra bushfires, survivors remember the day a wall of flames swept through the capital.
3: Those memories are still so vivid. Some people still have that that kernel of anger in them. They they still want to blame someone. The good things I heard though from people were like, it will always be a wound, but we've got scars now and scars are healed wounds.
0: The debate over the proposed Indigenous voice to Parliament is heating up. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is under increasing pressure to give Australians more detail on what's planned. Today, on commercial radio, he was pressed on everything from possible legal challenges to whether members of The Voice will be paid. Advocates for the change to the Constitution say an opportunity for important reform could become a casualty of political point scoring. Here's Matt Bamford.
1: On radio station 2GB this morning, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was asked about the government's referendum on an Indigenous voice to parliament. The vote is expected later this year on whether to recognise Indigenous Australians in the constitution and create the advisory body.
4: I'll just start with a simple question. Will the voice be a voice to parliament or a voice to parliament and to government? Well, it will
5: be will be both.
1: The interview with Ben Fordham was lively at times as the host pressed the Prime Minister on whether he'd go ahead and legislate a voice even if the referendum fails.
4: You may still say yes, you may still legislate it.
1: No,
6: you're confusing
1: rugby league and rugby union here. For more than 20 minutes, Prime Minister Albanese was hounded for detail.
4: Are people going to be appointed or elected to The Voice?
1: The karma Langton report...
6: No, no, just indicative. are people going to be appointed no, well, or elected? You
1: ask, a, you ask a question... But you're losing people when your Composition leader Peter Dutton called the wait? interview a train wreck. It
7: was just a shocker.
1: I'd just say to the Australian public, if Anthony Albanese can't
4: explain the voice, and Anthony Albanese doesn't understand how the voice will operate, but how
1: can Australians be expected to understand how the voice will operate without the detail? While its coalition partner, the Nationals, are opposing change, the Liberal Party is yet to announce its position, asking for more detail. Anthony Albanese says there's more than enough information available.
8: Look, there there is an enormous amount of detail out there already about how it might operate but it's not prescriptive.
1: Peter Dutton says this uncertainty makes the voice problematic. And
4: trying to give moral cover to the voice uh, through constitutional recognition uh, is a pretty cheap political trick And, and frankly it's pretty tacky from the Prime Minister.
1: Greg Barnes SC was the national campaign director for the Republican movement in the 1999 referendum. He says there's a feeling of deja vu.
7: One of the tactics that was used very successfully by the no case in 1999 was to continually ask for detail, to put scenarios that... uh, might or might not happen. And to really paint a picture that this was a really complex change, that there was a lot that was being unsaid and that it was dangerous and therefore you should vote no.
1: Don't people deserve that uh, level of detail?
7: Well, people do deserve uh, a debate where there is detail. In 1999, the government, uh, the Howard government had a government funded yes case and no case. Uh, I know the government has decided not to do that here, but the the issue about detail is how much is enough. If you simply get continued calls for detail and you respond to those calls, you're really playing into the hands of the no case. You're really uh, marching to their beat. Many Australians might just throw up their hands and say, well, look, I'm, I'm broadly supportive, but, you know, this looks too difficult. He says
1: there are challenges ahead for the government.
7: I think the government needs to be very careful not to be suckered into going negative and simply continuing to answer calls for further information when, in fact, as the Prime Minister has rightly said, there is a good deal of material out here on The Voice, as there was in relation to the Republic. And I, I think people forget that, that these propositions don't come out of the ether. There's been a, an enormous amount of work done in the lead up and there's an enormous amount of material that is available for people to look at.
1: Bardi man Nolan Hunter helped lead the Uluru Dialogues, a national consultation process with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that helped shape the proposal. He says the process is no different to other referendums in Australian history.
5: There were 44 referendums in this country since 1901. Most of those referendum proposals did not require the level of detail that's being asked now. The other is that when a referendum is called, of course it would be up to Parliament and government to work with people. If it is passed to work on the details after the referendum. Otherwise, why would you go through all that that process when you don't have a guarantee of a past referendum?
1: Nolan Hunter says it's important the key message of this referendum is not lost.
5: There's definitely um, a bit of game playing there, and it's all political. And so, you know, we're not about politics. We're about something that came uh, from the people and came from history. If you look at the Uluru statement statement asking for a voice, it's not new. You know, if you look right back in history, the ask from Indigenous people, asking to be heard, asking for a voice goes right back.
0: Bodyman Nolan Hunter, he was speaking there with Matt Bamford. Australian troops are leaving our shores this week, not for action on the front line, but to train Ukrainian recruits as they prepare to battle the Russian forces. Around 70 personnel will fly from Darwin to join Operation Interflex in the UK. Their involvement is part of a renewed push by Ukraine's allies to bolster the country's defences as the conflict approaches the 12-month mark. Rachel Mealy has more.
9: Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Australia has so far only donated military equipment to assist in the fight. Speaking at a farewell ceremony in Darwin, the Minister for Defence Personnel, Matt Keogh, says the deployment of Australian soldiers is an important next step.
4: So whilst Ukraine may be a long way from Darwin, it is a country and what it is being confronted with that Australia is proud to stand with and support.
9: As the conflict in Ukraine nears the 12-month mark, the Australian government says its support of Ukraine has never been stronger.
4: And we stand with the people of Ukraine. As a democratic country, ourselves, we understand the importance of maintaining a global rules-based order, of maintaining sovereign integrity.
9: The Australian soldiers will teach basic infantry tactics for urban and wooded environments, and it's believed they'll instruct the Ukrainians in the operation of the AK-47 rifle, which is commonly used in the conflict.
4: We know that you, as members of our Australian Defence Force, are the most important capability that we have. And so you, being able to assist those that are fighting for Ukraine, their most important capability, To be able to fight better, to fight smarter, is going to provide a fundamental increase in capability to Ukraine in doing what it's doing.
9: The head of the army, Lieutenant General Simon Stewart, travelled to the UK late last year to review the training program. He says the Ukrainians are keen to learn everything they can from the Australians.
1: I met a pastry chef, a taxi driver and a hairdresser. I met soldiers that were about the same age as some of you, about the same age as my son, and some that were a bit older, about my age. But the thing that was common to that very diverse group was their commitment, their courage, their focus and their stoicism, and I walked away feeling quite humbled
6: by the engagement that I had.
9: British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace announced the package in the UK Parliament.
6: Doubling down on the success of our basic training of Ukrainian military in 2022 in the United Kingdom, we are also now increasing this number this year to a further 20,000. Canada, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Lithuania, New Zealand and the Netherlands have already joined this effort and I'm pleased to say we are now joined by a group of Australian military to train in this country as well, leaving their summer to join our winter brave souls.
9: He says none of these training exercises could be considered acts of aggression.
6: None of the international support is an attack on Russia or NATO-orchestrated aggression, let alone a proxy war. At its heart, it is about helping Ukraine defend itself, upholding international law and restoring that country's sovereignty.
9: The deployment comes as Ukraine's allies step up their contribution in other ways. Germany now appears poised to donate a number of its Leopard 2 tanks, which is regarded as one of the West's best. And the Netherlands has pledged to offer US-made Patriot missiles to help in Ukraine's defence. Speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Elena Zelensky, the wife of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky urged world leaders to continue sending help. You all know that Russian aggression was never intended to stop at Ukrainian borders. She says this war can move forward and ignite wider crises if Ukraine loses.
0: Elena Zelensky speaking in Switzerland. Rachel Mealy with that report. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, AFLW trailblazer Daisy Pearce, one of the game's most high-profile players, calls it quits after six seasons.
4: Daisy Pearce on the board. Her seventh goal of the season. And Melbourne, AFLW
10: for the first time. The AFL needed literally a poster girl and Daisy Pierce was it. A Queensland mother whose child is
0: battling long COVID is warning other parents that many doctors are failing to diagnose the condition in children and some, she says, are dismissing the physical symptoms as being caused by anxiety or just being imagined. She's watching on in despair as her daughter struggles to recover from long COVID. My
2: daughter was a very normal, early teenage child who had a very full life, and it's completely derailed my child's life. Uh, She's gone from being someone who had a very full life to somebody who struggles to be able to leave the house for any length of time, to shower herself, to uh, be able to engage in normal activities of life. It's like being in lockdown, but your body's the thing keeping you locked down.
0: We're calling her Sarah to protect the family's identity. She says her daughter got COVID in March last year, but even after clearing the virus, couldn't get back to normal.
2: So she continued to have malaise and started to develop dizziness and uh, loss of appetite and just was decidedly unwell uh, for about a month, uh, three and a half weeks to a month afterwards. And then she began uh, one day quite suddenly experiencing extreme gastrointestinal symptoms.
0: Her daughter was seen by several GPs and specialists, but Sarah says it took months before long COVID was diagnosed.
2: There is a real lack of knowledge around how... Uh, long COVID presents, I think. And to some extent, that's not the fault of those who are diagnosing because it is such a new uh, virus that we're dealing with. But certainly, there seems to be a reticence to diagnose, particularly children with long COVID.
0: Have you spoken to other parents who've had similar experiences?
2: Very much so. There's a real need in the community that I don't think people understand or is widely acknowledged, certainly not politically. And I think that's in part because we're being encouraged to move on from COVID and to move towards a kind of COVID normal position and accept COVID. And I understand that that needs to happen to some extent, but I also think that it's not acknowledging the damage that has been done and is being done to those who might not have acute responses to COVID infections but then develop these quite acute and extreme post-viral presentations that are prompted by COVID and certainly there's a lot of parents that I've spoken to who have really struggled to even get acknowledgement of the symptoms that their children are experiencing
0: Dr Peter Smith is an allergist and honorary professor at the National Centre for Neuroimmunology and Emerging Diseases at Griffith University. He says the Australian and international data suggest as many as 30% of Australian children who get COVID could get long COVID too. The rise in the number of sufferers has seen his patient waiting list blow out to two years. He agrees many doctors are slow to diagnose long COVID in children
8: think we could all do better with this, but there is a massive information overload. We've had something like 400,000 medical uh, articles published on uh, COVID in the last three years, trying to wade through that and get the appropriate information. There's already under pressure health systems So um, there's some inertia in actually progressing with, A, the recognition of the disease and, uh, B, any sort of structured treatment uh, regimes.
0: And Dr Smith agrees some parents are being told their child's long COVID symptoms are purely psychological rather than physiological.
8: I do see uh, patients who have been told that their symptoms, which are very physiological and match long COVID, just have anxiety and therefore your management is going to be left to the psychiatric team. So it actually discharges them out of something that be, could be cardiac, it could be neurological, it could be a gastroenterological or a respiratory and it's left to the psychiatry teams which are already overloaded. And so I don't think it's intentional, but gaslighting them because they're just not trained to deal with this.
0: So how do you think the Australian health system can improve its handling of long COVID in children?
8: I think a general awareness, patients need that recognition rather than being told it's a simple mental health issue. At the moment, the Australian health system is largely broken. It hasn't got uh, clear pathways for the uh, management of this condition. And yes, we, we should be concerned and there urgently needs to be some expert consensus on the approach to children and adults with long covid
0: Dr Peter Smith from the National Centre for Neuroimmunology and Emerging Diseases at Griffith University. So how did GPs respond to the suggestion that many of them are failing to diagnose long COVID in children? Dr Nicole Higgins is the President of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners.
3: GPs are seeing children and adults with long COVID. The tricky bit is that the definition of long COVID and uh, kids is pretty uncertain, that we don't actually have an agreed definition or a pathway to follow this time.
0: What do you say, though, to the suggestion that some GPs may be dismissing physiological symptoms in in children as just being in the, the child's head or caused by anxiety rather than being long COVID?
3: Many of the symptoms of other illnesses like anxiety or other health problems can also present very similar to long COVID. So it does take time to work through that diagnosis and exclude other illnesses, It's not something that can be done in a single consultation and it does take
0: time. Is there a tendency though, do you think, amongst some of your colleagues to be reticent to diagnose long COVID and there's an attitude perhaps that, you know, oh, they're kids, they'll they'll quickly bounce back from COVID and, and just get out and about once again?
3: I mean, that is typically the case that children do tend to fare um, better than adults with acute COVID and probably less likely to have long COVID, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And increasing awareness that long COVID does happen in children is an education process and important that GPs are aware of that. And that's part of the role of RACGP is making sure our members know about long COVID in children.
0: It's been reported often in recent months that GPs are overworked and and not getting paid enough under Medicare. How difficult is it then to, to spend time with a patient who's presenting with long COVID? Covid symptoms to work out what's wrong with them?
3: Yeah, so the current system continues to undervalue the skill and time needed uh, by GPs with the patients. And what we've been calling for is, you know, increased Medicare rebate for patients so that they can spend longer time with their GP. It's really important that the government recognises that there is a long needed funding boost and it does take time to get to the bottom you know, of these symptoms for these patients.
0: What's your advice though to a parent who may have a very sick child who's just not recovered from their COVID infection and they're struggling to get a diagnosis and perhaps struggling to get specialist help? as well, what should they do?
3: So it's really important to raise those questions with your family, GP, get a second opinion if needed. And it does take time to establish that, that diagnosis and to exclude other problems and keep asking the questions. And what we're finding is that it may take a couple of consultations to get to the bottom of what's going on. But we do get there and it's important that we bring in the support of those around us and really also establishing those long COVID clinics as well, where the expertise lies. Having those funded is going to be really important as we move into increasing burdens of long COVID.
0: Have we got many long COVID clinics?
3: We don't have many long COVID clinics and we need to ensure that people... Uh, in rural and remote communities also have access to these long COVID clinics, also access through telehealth, because the burden on our health system is only going to continue to increase.
0: Dr Nicole Higgins, the President of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. Well, 20 years ago today, the Canberra sky turned black and the city was smothered in smoke as bushfires tore through the Brindabella Ranges and into the western suburbs. Four people died, many others were injured and more than 500 homes were destroyed. Catherine Gregory reports.
6: very critical. Got- Uh, a number of large fire fronts approaching in the
11: urban edge. As the day progressed on January 18, 2003, news reports became increasingly alarming as a mega bushfire caused by two lightning strikes in timber-dry bush outside of Canberra advanced rapidly towards the city.
5: There can't be a graver situation facing a community than this, as is obvious to everybody. There's a way to go yet.
11: A wall of flames 30 metres wide destroyed parts of Canberra as western suburbs, 500 homes engulfed, four lives lost and countless injured or suffering smoke inhalation. For many Camberians reflecting back on that day 20 years ago, it's the memory of thick, choking smoke and a pitch black sky that stand out. The sky was dark. It seems like within a matter of minutes that there are embers falling all around us. Natalie Larkins is an ABC journalist who was reporting on that day in 2003. She also lost her home in Rivet. We'd watched this wall of fire just, you know, flow down the hill from the bush, you know, basically to our front door and it was just like we are
3: in the middle of hell.
11: She remembers quickly escaping out of Canberra to a family member's home in Queanbeyan. Just to, to get away from that feeling that the fire was chasing us. And Natalie has been speaking to other people who lost their homes in the 2003 fires in the lead-up to today's anniversary and says it's raised mixed feelings for everyone. Those memories are still so vivid.
3: Some people still have that that kernel of anger in them. They, they still want to blame someone. Some of the, the, the good things I heard, though, from people were like, It will always be a wound. There'll be scars, but we've got scars now, and scars are healed wounds.
11: After the 2003 fires, inquiries into the emergency response found more could have been done to prevent losses if the fires were attacked more aggressively earlier on. A coronial inquest also recommended structural changes to emergency services, better resourcing and fuel management. But overall, the inquiries were scathing of the lack of official warnings about the threats to the outer suburbs. The ACT Emergency Services Agency Commissioner, Georgina Whelan. And when we think about the technology we have today,
10: the structures we have and how we operate. Um, There is a level of maturity both in the ACT nationally and internationally with firefighting that was just not present in 2003.
11: She says the ACT and Australia has come a long way in how it responds to bushfires. Huge improvements have been made, particularly in terms of technology and equipment. Andrew Gissing is the Chief Executive Officer of Natural Hazards Research Australia. He says one of the big lessons learned is how to utilise mobile technology for warnings.
1: Now we've actually got a a national emergency alerting system which uses uh, text messages to mobile phones, messages to uh, to to landlines. This is these are tools that emergency services can use in a proactive sense.
11: Peter Dunn was appointed the commissioner of the ACT Emergency Services Authority after the 2003 fires, and was involved in fighting the flames on Farrah Ridge on January 18.
6: was one of those horrifying moments when you realise you're staring Mother Nature right in the face.
11: Mr Dunn is also a member of the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action and says while bushfire strategies have come a long way since 2003, back then everyone was following what was protocol at the time.
6: The equipment that was there was uh, uh, insufficient, but it was considered by the governments of the day uh, to be adequate. It was totally inadequate. In hindsight, uh, the big failing was not the actions of those individuals that were pilloried. The real issue was that no one recognised the impact of what we now routinely talk about, that thing called climate change.
0: Former Commissioner of the ACT Emergency Services Authority, Peter Dunn. Catherine Gregory with that report. AFLW trailblazer Daisy Pearce, one of the best known faces in women's footy, has announced her retirement after six seasons. A standout player and respected commentator, the game's followers say the 34 year old has been not only an important role model in the AFL, but also in women's sport more broadly. Bridget Fitzgerald prepared this report.
8: Daisy Pearce has become the face of a new era for the AFL. This is Daisy Pearce, who is another fantastic career she's had so far.
12: Daisy Pearce was a standout from the start.
2: First number one female draft pick and also the first number one draft pick to cry, I think. So uh, I got two
12: gongs there. (laughs) The number one pick in the first ever AFL women's draft went on to captain the Melbourne Demons from their inaugural game to their first premiership last year.
7: for the first time. It's a grand new
12: flag. After six seasons and 55 games with the D's, Pierce announced her retirement from the game today.
2: Closing the chapter on my playing career with a very full heart, um, not just because we ticked the premiership box in the season just gone, but because of a career that I've...
12: Loved and cherished. Since the inaugural AFLW season in 2017, Pearce has been one of the league's best and most high-profile stars.
10: The AFL needed
12: literally a poster girl and Daisy Pearce was it. Sports journalist Sam Lane is a broadcaster with Channel 7 and the ABC and the author of Raw, the story of the AFL Women's League. One of the key ingredients with Daisy from the
10: very beginning is that she in a way could have been anyone. She was relatable. She was likable. And guess what? She knew and really, really knew how to play Aussie rules footy. So this notion of, you know, you have to see it to believe it. Daisy was a living, breathing person who happened to be a woman who could play footy really well. And she was totally embraced immediately, by the AFL as that figurehead and poster girl
12: for this new AFL Women's League. Being that figurehead has meant she's been an important role model during the establishment and evolution of the women's game. Casey Simons is a research fellow with the Sport Innovation Research Group at Swinburne University. She's really ticked so many boxes along the way but has also managed just to be an amazing person, an
10: incredible leader and a really inspirational figure behind this movement to see women achieving
12: what they want to achieve in sport and beyond. As well as being an exceptionally talented player, Pierce has been outspoken about the need for AFLW to be a legitimate league rather than an offshoot of the men's game. She's had to fight back against criticism for her role as a female commentator and she's been lauded for returning to the game following the birth of twins in 2019. Casey Simons says Pierce plays a vital role in promoting women in sport
10: what Daisy's been able to do in her role in the media and speaking up about certain issues using her platform and being a real leader in other spaces has
12: shown so many more women, gender diverse people and also men that women have a place in the room on these issues. While she has retired from playing Daisy Pearce's broader career is still in full swing. She'll continue working as a highly respected commentator and will take up a role as a coach with Geelong. Sam Lane again. It's a stubbornly male
10: dominated area that she's done this uh, but in a sporting and wider life perspective uh, she brings it all and we still need to hear so much more and not just from Daisy herself there's only one Daisy Pierce. Uh, the Australian sporting world and the big wide world actually needs well bunches and and more bunches if I can say it of daisies.
0: Broadcaster Sam Lane ending that report from Bridget Fitzgerald. Thanks for joining me for PM this Wednesday. I'm Samantha Donovan. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.